Welcome, church. It's good to have you here, especially those of you who are church family and friends and are tuning in and and haven't um, um, been maybe even a part of our church and just tuned in for the first time. We hope that uh, God blesses you through our service. I'm excited to share with you on Palm Sunday. Welcome. Um, We're excited about how God is at uh, work, even in the midst of these circumstances. I know many of you are working from home. And I thought maybe we would try it again. We tried it last week, and Mike Brinkman uh, did an incredible job kind of picking up where we had some technical difficulties. We're going to give this one more shot. And I also want to just kind of say to those of you who are in the medical field who are who are not working at home but are, are putting yourself at risk, we are so grateful and so thankful for your, your sacrifice. Um, and we are praying for you. Um, I want to also do, um, last week I, I showed you a little bit about my, my porch and where I study, but um, it got cut off right when I was um, sharing some things about my wife, Grace. So I'm going to ask Grace to come back. Grace is kind of our producer, set designer, clothes coordinator. She's my personal performance executive. Um, learned that one this week that, that people actually have that. Um, IT manager, and she's also my wife. I'm so grateful, Grace, for you to be a part of this. And uh, welcome. Thanks for saying hi. Well, hello. Are you going to give a message or? Love to. Yeah, right. Well, you know, what I, what you did do is this week, uh, during the week, you stopped me when I was um, in the time of preparation and said, hey, do you have time for a joke? And I kind of said, yeah, why don't you share that with me? So you have a joke. I think it's even one that applies for kids. Of course. Okay. So do you want to share that, that joke? Yes. Okay. Why was six afraid of seven? Why? Uh, I, I really don't know why was six afraid of seven. Because seven, eight, nine. What? Unbelievable. You know what? Not only is she my wife, she's a comedian. Yeah. Wow. And, and think of that as I think about it. it. Not only that, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen. Seven's a scary, scary dude. Anyway, I'm really glad you're a part of this. Um, I, I want to read to you because we're in this series in the last of the plagues. Here in Egypt, and I wrote a little something that I had read these lines. Sometimes it's patience, not love, that runs out. And you may have experienced that in your life. Patience always ends up giving more than it should. Patience is what allows us to forgive today, tomorrow, and the next day, and hope a little bit harder for the dream that things will get better. Patience is a virtue. However, it's important to recognize that patience has boundaries. We can't live our whole life being patient. We can't sit back and watch the rights of others violated. At a certain point, love exceeds patience and says enough. And and patience isn't passivity either. Uh, A a passive person uh, makes tolerance a way of life. And a passive person allows selfishness and abuse to go unchecked. Passivity does nothing. Passivity fails to courageously step up and step in with love and truth for the sake of the relationship. And at a certain point, love challenges passivity and says, enough. We're patient because we love, not passive because we're afraid or indifferent. Love calls us to act for the good of the relationship. Love requires patience, long suffering and kindness, but only up to a certain point. Sometimes it's patience, not love, that runs out. And that's where we're at as we look at Exodus chapter 11. 
God in mercy has been waiting. God in hope has been longing for a changed heart in Pharaoh and the people of Egypt. And God has been calling again and again, yet at some point, patience, not love, runs out. And God says enough. God came and, and very, um, rather nicely said, let my people go and then demonstrate with power. Uh, and, and Pharaoh just refused to listen. So then he began a series of plagues. And the first three were basically things that made life difficult in in Egypt. They were like economic sanctions. And then he came with the next three. And the next three, he declared war. Um, It was uh, three separate invasions that caused substantial loss and pain. And then he came with the last three. And at that point, God said, I'm going to unleash my full scale of attack upon you. And he, he did so with hail. And, and, and wiped out their crops, killed both livestock and people. And then in the eighth plague, he came and he threw the plague of locusts, decimated their cash crop of wheat. And at that point, everything and anything green was devoured by the locusts. It's kind of like a one-two punch that creates a nuclear wasteland. There's disease, famine, and death. It's kind of their new reality. I, I imagine them walking around rather aimlessly and in shock. And as I said last week, imagine this, just as we're getting to flatten the curve of this coronavirus, there's another virus that comes, not a physical bodily infection, but a computer virus infecting all of our power grids, shutting down all electronic communications, and everything goes black. There's no Zoom, Google Hangouts, FaceTimes, phone calls, text, emails, podcasts, TV reports, Netflix, Amazon Prime, I mean... Everything goes black. That that would be a one-two punch to have this virus and then an electronic virus that wipes out everything. The only thing left to create worldwide panic would be for some reason if the light of the sun was blackened. All became dark. And not just kind of like a moonless night kind of dark. But I'm talking about a pitch black dark, a kind of dark you could feel. And that's where we were left off at at the ninth plague. This is literally what Egypt was experiencing, and yet Pharaoh doesn't let the Israelites go. Even after God's um, unbelievable displays of his power, his patience, his, his mercy, opportunity after opportunity, that Pharaoh would rethink his policies. But now God, his patience, not his love, but his patience runs out. And God says enough. And he tells Moses, there's one more plague. And that's where we're at with the 10th plague in Exodus chapter 11. That plague, um, as there has been nine, now there's a 10th. And 10 in biblical numbers is a a very important, significant number. It, It speaks to the idea of totality and fullness. You think of like the 10 commandments is, is the perfect and complete expression of the will of God or Genesis 1 where 10 times the phrase God spoke testifies to God's perfect and total creative power or the millennial reign of Christ which is a thousand years which is this idea of 10 times 10 times 10 the complete full reign of the goodness of God well as we look at Exodus chapter 11 1 through 3 Let me read these verses to you. It says, Then the Lord had said to Moses, and that had said is important, I will strike Pharaoh in the land of Egypt with one more blow. 
And after that, Pharaoh will let you leave this country. In fact, he will be so eager to get rid of you that he will force all of you to leave. And tell all the Israelite men and women to ask their Egyptian neighbors for articles of silver and gold. Now the Lord had caused the Egyptians to look favorably on the people of Israel. And Moses was considered a very great man in the land of Egypt, respected by Pharaoh's officials and the Egyptian people alike. The Lord tells Moses, this is a final blow. It's a knockout punch. Pharaoh will feel the impact of this blow and he will be done negotiating. Not only will he let you go, but he won't be able to get rid of you fast enough. And then he tells him, go ahead and tell your people, ask the Egyptians for silver and gold things. And I, I use the word things, not jewelry, because it isn't in the Hebrew language, the word jewelry. It's the idea. It's more the idea of a general term like stuff, whatever gold or silver stuff they have, ask for it and they'll give it to you. And it's not so much that they're looting the land, although they had conquered it through God's uh, defeating of, of, of the enemy of Egypt, but it's more this idea that the people of Egypt and God is the kind of God who repays us for our suffering. He was repaying, in a sense, the Hebrew slaves for their years of hard labor. The Egyptians had, in essence, robbed the Hebrew people through their oppression. God made that promise to to uh, Moses when he called him in Exodus 3. He said, I will make the Egyptians favorably disposed towards this people so that when you leave, you will not leave empty-handed. And the attitude of the Egyptian people would be, whatever you want, take it. Just get out of here and take your God with you. And then this little parenthetical phrase, now the Lord had caused the Egyptians to look favorably on the people of Israel, and Moses was considered a a very great man in the land of Egypt by Pharaoh's officials and all the people in Egypt. That that kind of parenthetical statement um, points back to, it's kind of the intro to this next and last 10th plague. It was obvious that Moses was esteemed their God had beaten every one of their, uh, uh, the God of, uh, of Moses, Yahweh, had beaten every one of the gods that they entrusted him. And secondly, there's a second thing that kind of shows reason they esteemed, and it shows just a psychological distance that had developed between Pharaoh and the rest of the Egyptians. I mean, anyone with an ounce of sense among the Egyptian people knew that resisting Moses' God, Yahweh, was stupid and useless. They saw Pharaoh's policy of continued resistance, I think, as a fanatical, destructive, and hopeless stance that brought nothing but harm to them. So they they were ready to get rid of him. And these first three verses are a rehearsal of what God has said a number of times to Moses before. Not word for word, but conceptually. That's why in verse 1 it says the Lord had said to Moses. This had been said to him um, when he called him. It also is said many years before that. God promised um, not only to take care of Moses when he gave in the people of Israel when he gave the call to Moses back in chapter three, but all the way back to Genesis chapter fifteen, in the life of Abraham, one point when the sun was going down, Abraham fell asleep and in this deep sleep had this dream where he was told what his descendants would be strangers in a foreign land they'd be there for four hundred years and and it says this literally, but I will punish the nation that enslaves them, and in the end they will come away Israel will with great wealth that was five hundred years before God um, had begun to deal with Moses and Exodus 
Exodus was not merely written to help the Hebrew people trust God as things happened, but to help them learn to trust that their God, Yahweh, is the one who makes things happen in the first place. Some 500 years before, God said he would do what he would do. And we can live confidently, even today, in every situation, knowing that God is at work. That God is at work not only as it's happened, but he saw before this was no accident that is occurring. Even right now, this coronavirus and what's going on in people's lives. This is no afterthought of God as if he wasn't aware. Not that God causes it, but as he allows it. He knew it and he can work through it. So whatever your current circumstances may be, live confidently. Fully convinced that God stands over them. He stands before them. He stands in them with you and he stands through them with you. And that he will be with you after it's over. Having led you to the place he promised to bring you. So here's the point. Live confidently. God takes care of his people. This is a time. I'm going to just challenge you. This is a time right now to to place complete confidence in God. It's not a time to cower in fear. Just fear God and you will fear nothing else doesn't mean to be foolish in regard um, health warnings and the government restrictions. It does mean to live with confidence and peace that God is at work. Trust God not only as this is happening, but know that God, as he's allowing this to happen, is causing things to happen for your good. See, in this 10th plague, we're taught that God took care of his people, even, even caused their enemies to look upon them with favor. Think of all the years that the people of Israel spent in slavery, being taken advantage of, being whipped, being worked to death, not receiving the wages for all their hard work. Yet God hadn't forgotten them through that time of cruelty, and God is not forgetting you right now in the situation you may be in. He ensured that they would receive more than enough riches to make up for it. God will show you favor. God takes care of his people. God will even give you favor in the eyes of your enemies. We're told in Proverbs 16, 7, when a man, a person's ways are pleasing to the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. So look for God to show you favor. Basically step out in faith. This is not a time, I said, to cower in fear, but to move into faith. A fear of God is descending upon all of the people. It was happening in Egypt, and I think it's happening today. There's a sense that the officials, to the magicians, to the every person Egyptian in the land was beginning to understand that God was at work and God's in control. And I think that's happening today. So live confidently knowing that God is greater than your greatest fear. I saw the other day um, this little thing uh, that showed this orca whale. And um, it says when you are on top of the food chain, even the most feared take notice and become afraid. And I was thinking about that. They they show this picture of this orca, and it, it's known by another name. Um, it's kind of a forbidding name called a killer whale. And, and you may be more familiar with that name. But the killer whale, uh, when you consider this, it is the it is called an apex predator meaning there is no creature that can prey on it. Orcas 
occupied the very top of the oceanic food chain. Rescuers have studied the behavior of another ferocious predator, the great white shark, and, and they studied it when it's in the vicinity of orcas. It appears that the sharks will leave the area quickly, as fast as they can, if an orca pod gets anywhere near them. And the sharks may not return to their usual hunting grounds for a year or so. Now that's what I call intimidation. See, God has the ability to turn the hearts of people towards him. Even your enemy in their in the hands of God will show you favor. So live confidently. I mean, God's at the top of the food chain and he promised to take care of you. Now, before I get into the next few verses, it's really important to understand that this announcement in those first three verses um, occurred probably during the ninth plague. Pharaoh had told them in that ninth plague that uh, he wanted to leave their livestock. He's still negotiating. And, and Moses countered and said, no, God is not negotiating any longer. Everything goes with us. Not a hoof is to be left behind. So Pharaoh changes his mind again. He gets angry, hardens his heart, and won't let him go. And Exodus ten twenty seven says that Pharaoh once again for the fifth time as he changes his mind, and after Egypt has been decimated by hail and the locusts and the darkness, he once again hardens his heart. There is no spiritual sensitivity at all. At this point, many scholars believe that when Moses was there in his presence, that God gave him a revelatory word. So in this ninth plague, he announces the tenth plague, the final blow of the firstborn. And this really explains, as you read it, the incredible rage and death threats that were given to Moses by Pharaoh. Three times Pharaoh says, get out of my sight. Don't appear before me again. If I ever see your face again, you're dead because of this, this idea that Moses was now and his God threatening the death of his firstborn. And so in Moses in 1029 basically says, don't worry, you won't see my face again. You'll only see my backside as I and all the people and my livestock too leave Egypt. Now listen to this account, if you would, that occurred probably in the ninth plague of these, these verses. So Moses said, thus says the Lord, about midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on the throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. Again, you note the pervasiveness of this and even the timing, because this time God gives a few days because he's giving instruction to his people who will actually take a sacrifice and blood and post and paste it on the door frames in order that this angel of, of death or this plague would, would pass over them and they would be safe. All Egypt, he says, will be struck from, uh, by this. But from the greatest to the least, it's almost like from the CEO to the minimum wage employer. That's what the handmill um, maiden was, in a sense. From Pharaoh to the lowest slave in Egypt's household. But again, it won't touch it won't touch the people of Israel if, by faith, they trust in God's provision. So you have to ask yourself, what is this play? Alan Cole um, writes, Egypt and Philistia along the coast and along the coast of uh, where Egypt and up through Philistia uh, were famous as regions where plagues like the bubonic plague or poliomyelitis, which we know today is polio. And back in that day, it was deadly. 
And it was often one that would attack the young, as we even know, if you think of our late outbreaks around Roosevelt in, in, in that time in the 30s or so. God would once again, by taking a natural plague, I think, although in this sense, it's very clear that God's um, behind this and he's allowing the consequences of these choices of their stubbornness to bring them to their knees. So you have this killing of the firstborn. And then in verses 6 through 7, it says, There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been, nor will ever be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. This idea of loud wailing or great cry, whatever it's translated in your word, goes back to Exodus chapter 3, verses 7 and 9 to describe the loud wailing of Israel due to the horrific um, oppression and slavery that they were enduring. In, in chapter 223, it is the same word again where it says Israel cried loudly to God for deliverance. And then in Exodus chapter 515, Israel is crying loudly again, wailing out loud to Pharaoh, but in vain, hoping that he would give them relief. And, and what you find here is now the tables are turned and Egypt is wailing and crying out in anguish at judgment. I saw a show, I think it was on 2020 or something of the week, and this guy who in all arrogance, who had it created not just great pain, but had killed a number of people. And, and he was just arrogant when he was in the room being um, examined. And, and there was a part you just go, man, turn the tables on this guy. Well, that's what's happening now. The tables are being turned. And then the thing I need to mention is that dogs in ancient days were not lap dogs like we think of. They were, I hate to say it, but they were like big rats. They were scavengers and they would go in packs and, and, and they were vicious and, and they would go after scraps of meat. They would growl when you came near them as, as a person. But what God is saying that even the dogs won't growl. Even nature, in a sense, wants these people to leave. The holy presence of God is just not something you can bear to be in if you stand in opposition to him. You don't want to be with him. That's that's what hell is. You want to be as far apart from him for the rest of your life. All goodness you want to be away from. So live joyfully. Here's the thing I want to share in this verse. Live joyfully. God purified those he's loved. That's, that's why he says nothing will touch them. While this was a time of judgment upon Pharaoh and Egypt, it was at the very same time God was purifying Israel. He was stretching them, causing them to flex their muscles of faith. You got to imagine what was going on. They're, they're safe and cloistered in their area, but I'm sure they're still afraid. They were having to trust in God in this time. He was forcing them to place their complete trust in him and him alone. He was showing them that how a great and loving God he was, that he could actually protect them in the midst of this. Imagine if you were living in a time of play. Duh, we don't have to, right? God uses times of crisis to purify our heart. He's using this time right now to purify our heart. He's cleansing his people. He's using this pandemic to strengthen our faith in him. As we are furloughed from work or expenses grow out, income shrinks. As we deal with a loved one who is injected or maybe infected with COVID-19. Or you may live with someone or are related to someone in the medical community and, and you know the fear and, and the exhaustion that they're experiencing as they serve on the front lines. Or even this, as you face 
maybe your 20th day of isolation, which could go on to 40, 50, whatever it may be. God is using this time to purify our heart. So I just want to call you to live with joy. Know that God will care for you and know, know that God treats you as a son or daughter. He disciplines, he cleanses, he purifies, he prunes those he loves. So I, I, I want to encourage you to go, man, don't, don't be walking with your head down. Now is a time for boldness and confidence. Live confidently. God, God will take care of you and, and live joyfully knowing that God is doing something in you. He's creating a faith in you. He's creating his character in you. He's causing you to grow in him. God is setting you apart as his own so that you're, you and, um, and others will be bearing the reflection of God in your life. A number of years ago, when I was praying and as I've been praying, I think my life is a prayer and an intercession for revival. <clears throat> and I've been praying for that for years and and God was speaking to me quite, quite um, intimately. And I was away on a kind of retreat time. And I, I opened Malachi chapter 3. I, and God had led me from one thing to another to this verse. And I read this verse and I got really excited. It says, look, I'm sending my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. Then the Lord you are seeking will suddenly come to his temple. And that word suddenly, just I was so excited. The messenger of the covenant whom you are looking so eagerly for is surely coming, says the Lord of the heaven's armies. And I I was really excited. And then I read the next verse. Now, catch this. This is Malachi writing at the end of the Old Testament about the coming of Christ when there's going to be a 400-year time of silence where God is getting his people ready. But who will be able to endure it when he comes? Who will be able to stand and face him when he appears? For he will be like a blazing fire that refines metal or like a strong soap that bleaches clothes. He will sit like a refiner of silver, burning away the dross. And he will purify the Levites, refining them like gold and silver so that they may once again offer acceptable sacrifices to the Lord. Then once more, the Lord will accept the offerings brought to him by his people, as he did in the past. And so I read that, I thought, wow, what God will do before he comes is get us ready. He will cause there to be a cleansing. And as I was thinking about it, just think of all the washing of hands that are going on right now. Just just think of all the disinfectants that are being used. We can't even get enough of them. Anywhere a person goes, they immediately, I went to the grocery store the other day and they're wiping things down and, and everything's disinfected. Everybody's washing their hands at least should be. And I go, is there something in the physical realm that God is doing in the spiritual realm? Is he purifying our hearts? And, and one of the things that really kind of was um, interesting when I studied this Silver, when it's refined, is really different than gold. Gold, you dip in and the dross comes up and it's in a heat for a while. But it's done. Silver isn't like that. Silver is, is dipped in again and again and again and again and again, like up to seven times or more. The refiner will continue to dip the silver in there and <clears throat> until it gets to the point where when he looks at the silver that's being refined, he can see clearly his reflection in it. And that's what God is doing. 
I believe God is purifying his church right now. He wants to see his reflection in it. Because the world needs to see the reflection of God in us. The world needs to know that God loves them. It's not our time to judge them. It's our time to share with them the good news and the hope that comes through Jesus Christ. And and God is getting his reflection in us so that people can see. And it comes through cleansing and purifying. But I, I, I really believe there will be a suddenly. And God's going to come. And he's preparing us. I was, I was thinking about this when I was um, preparing. And I thought, you know what? One of the things God might be doing is not just creating his reflection in us, but he's also building his grace and faith in us. Uh, I was thinking about if we had guests that came over, we would not ask them to sit down. Let's say we have them over for supper or dinner, and, and we wouldn't grab dirty dishes out of the dishwasher. We would, we would make sure they were washed and clean in order to serve um, the food that we had graciously prepared. And God is doing the same with us. Think about it. He's, he's purifying us, building our faith, causing us to grow in boldness and to listen to the Spirit of God and to move into those places where we can love through actions or if a word needs to be shared, that we can do that. And he's doing it not because we're perfect, we will make mistakes, we're broken, but he's doing it because he wants his reflection to be seen and he wants to be served in lives that are completely seeking obedience to him. Now, there's more that I could go on and share about this passage of scripture. The last few verses I think are interesting. It says all the officials in verse eight will run to me and fall basically down on the ground before me. And they'll say, please leave. They'll beg, hurry, and take all your followers with you. Only then only then um, will I go. And it says, then burning with anger, Moses left Pharaoh. And I, I truly believe the anger was uh, twofold. One, a deep compassion and yet a righteous anger. A compassion because he, he knew the people that would be impacted because of the continued stubbornness and opposition to God. And, and, and I just, if you're listening and you're, you're in opposition to God and you're standing against God, uh, you don't know it, but the impact that falls on the lives of others because of your pride and the hurt it could bring to your family. And God's saying, humble yourself. Now the Lord said to Moses earlier, verse nine, he had said this to Moses, um, Pharaoh won't listen to you, but then I will do even more mighty miracles in the land of Egypt. And Moses and Aaron performed these miracles in Pharaoh's presence, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he wouldn't let the Israelites leave the country. And that kind of is a summation. We've come to the end of the plagues. It's over. Because God will judge all who are proudly opposed to him. Yet, I just want to make this clear before I close. Whenever God judges, he comes with warning. And I don't know how many, if you're in a situation where you're standing kind of high-handed like Pharaoh was opposed, I don't know how many warnings God has given you. This could be the last one. What you find in all these plagues is that God is a God of incredible patience and mercy. It isn't that love runs out, but at a certain time, he has to, for the good of the relationship and for others, he has to stop things. He warns them again and again. It's not like when we read this here that God suddenly decided to kill Egypt's firstborn. 
in an active angel. Sometimes it's patience, not love, that runs out. And at a certain point, love exceeds patience and God says enough. The proud opposition must be stopped. The abuse of oppression must end. The stone-cold heart against God and his rule in this world and over this life must be judged. God would be the God of Pharaoh, and God will be the God of every person. God loves you. And I want to share with you that whatever circumstance you're in, God has made a promise that you can live confidently. He will take care of you. And I also want to just let you know that as you go through these things, you can live with joy because God is a father who loves you. He loves those and those he loves, he purifies so that you might reflect him more fully. And if you're standing opposed to God, this passage is really clear. God will judge. God will judge. It says in um, Romans, and I'll close with this um, verse. Romans says this, don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see that his kindness is intended to turn you from your sin? It's like this whole theory series is about to cause you to rethink and say, yeah, maybe I need to bend my knee, humble my heart, and, and put my trust in God. Paul writes, but because you are stubborn and refuse to turn from your sin, you are storing up terrible punishment for yourself. For a day of anger is coming when God's righteous judgment will be revealed and he will judge everyone according to what they have done. I just want to say, church family, this is our opportunity. This is our day to live for God, to let people know how merciful he is. And not to come and to warn with a fist and anger, but to out of a compassion. This is our day to live the fruits of the Spirit, to allow the image of God to be seen in you. This is an opportunity to pray for others, to care for others, and to share the good news of Jesus Christ. I'm going to challenge us to pray and to do what we've been talking about, to prayer, this whole idea of prayer, care, and share. Let me pray. Father, I pray for those who are listening. I pray that they would begin to pray for those around them that you are reaching into their lives and that, God, you would cause them to care in ways that would touch the hearts of those they're praying for and that, God, when there's opportunity, that they might share the hope that they have in you, the love that they have. And we pray, God, that as the fear of God through all this continues to increase, that hearts would turn to you. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. God bless you. Um, And happy Palm Sunday.